People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yose, and we're your host. It's really a handful of legislators in the state legislature that are really the holders of power when you're talking about legislators who stop uh, progress. In this episode of Truth and Reconciliation, we delve into one of the key issues facing a city reeling from years of unconstitutional policing, reform. We will be talking to Adam Jackson about the efforts of his organization, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, to fight for change in Annapolis. All this coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. Tay and I have spent many years at this point, and Sean too, covering Annapolis, which is the state capital of Maryland, which is where you know many of the laws governing policing uh, have to be passed because the Baltimore Police Department is actually a state agency. And in the past couple of years, we've noticed that almost every effort to reform policing, despite everything that has happened, uh, has failed. I mean, Sean, does that surprise you? No, because the FOP has one of the most powerful lobbies. In, and the FOP is? The Fraternal Order of Police. Um, one of the most po- powerful lobbies in the United States, quite frankly. Um, um, and even with the the uh, eyes of groups like Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle or, or Out for Justice or mm-hmm. all these other organizations, mm-hmm. um, they've, they've made the fight m- more of a fight. Absolutely. But still, the FOP's lobby is so powerful that it's been incredibly difficult to to create to to craft even the most kind of basic changes mm-hmm. when it comes to policing policies in in, in, in Maryland and Baltimore City in particular. Until you've been in the thick of it, you've actually seen the Fraternal Order Police operate, right? I mean, there were times when you caught them on camera kind of giving um, flight signals to... Yes, yes, sending up smoke signals to various senators. We know that the FOP has donated thousands of dollars in campaign funds to various senators uh, and various legislators in Annapolis, but what I didn't expect was to actually see the FOP giving hand signals to said senators. I actually have this on video. I yeah. work as a photog as well as a reporter, and I was in the Annapolis, uh, was in Annapolis in the room with Senator Bobby Zirkin as, a, as two members of the FOP were sitting in the back, giving him a thumbs up as they pointed to a piece of paper where he was actually reading their talking points. Just so people know, Bobby's Zirkin is a senator, a Democratic senator from Baltimore County, who who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is where all police reform goes. To, but Sean, you where, up a, where all police reform goes to die. Goes to die. Excuse me. But Sean, you you brought up a really great point. I mean, you are a veteran of covering Annapolis. You you've worked for the Afro for almost thirty years. But there has been there is some hope because 20, 10, 15 years ago there was no LBS or there was oh, no. Oh right. Well, that's that was my that was kind of my point of my right. earlier comment. I mean, there were there there were there was no. Uh, there were no watchdog organizations, um, especially young black right. uh, uh, groups, 
um, with a, a, a very uh, a, a great understanding of 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 how uh, law enforcement works and an understanding of the, the law itself. Yeah. Um, there weren't those types of entities that were doing that type of work. Um, not 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 the way LBS and others are doing. No, that. I mean I've never I've never seen a lobbyist for police reform or lobbyists for bail reform. It's always been the opposite. They're bail bondsmen. There's right. FOP, but I've never seen it. You know, it's like, so intense. Yeah, there were like maybe a, a few individuals who. Yeah. I mean, got I mean, literally nowhere. With, <laughs> right, with right. But yeah. I, I feel like LBS has got some, some, some weight down there now. Well, they, 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 they're in the game. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. They're definitely in the game. I, th- I think that's an excellent introduction for our next guest, Adam Jackson, who is the CEO of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, a group that has been at the forefront of lobbying for police and criminal justice reform. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, first thing, there was a Senate bill put forward by Senator Bobby Zirkin, which was an accumulation of a lot of the tough-on-crime measures, and it had a few sweeteners of reform mixed in. Mm -hmm. What happened with this bill? It was a lot of uh, political posturing and a lot of tricks played towards the end of the session. Essentially what happened was that Governor Larry Hogan presented his crime package in the beginning of the session, uh, which he knew would not pass uh, through the Democratic legislature. And so Senator Bobby Zirkin was tasked by the leadership of the Democratic Party, mostly Mike Miller and uh, Michael Bush, to mm-hmm. essentially uh, create an, an informal work group or um, sort of subcommittee or what have you. And they created the quote-unquote bipartisan uh, solution for crime in Baltimore. And so that ended up being uh, Senate Bill 122. And mm-hmm. so it's really it was really the Republican agenda for crime and being presented by Democrats. And so what ended up happening was, um, you know, when we realized that's what was happening, it was being fast-tracked through the legislature, passed the Senate really quickly. And so we we were fighting uh, with the House to make sure that they did not pass it. And so it ended up dying in a committee in appropriations with Maggie McIntosh. Um, and so after it died, that following that Saturday before the end of session, they essentially convened all the legislators together and tried to put mandatory minimum provisions onto other bills that you know that had nothing to do with this bill. And so what what should be noted though is that the Demo- uh, the legislative black caucus and the Latino caucus, um, all and the Montgomery County uh, delegation all stood up and said no to Senate Bill 122. So that is what mm-hmm. effectively killed it, and along with the other public pressure. But um, yeah, that's uh, that was the story is that they were trying to fast track it through. What happened to Safe Streets? Did Safe Streets funding make it in? I mean, I know there was like a uh, a bill that was attached to this for Safe Streets, but what happened to the Safe Streets funding? Well, that was Delegate Talmadge Branch's bill, and that passed. Uh, what they did was they amended on ma- a mandatory minimum onto his bill as well. And just so people know, Safe Streets is a violence mediation program, right? That mm-hmm. you know, and so that's going to happen. There's going to be ten more centers in Baltimore. Yeah, that's the goal. That was the goal with Talmadge Branch's bill, and it was initially a good bill. It's just that uh, when they realized that the governor's crime package wasn't to, uh, wasn't going to pass, they just started adding on these other mandatory minimum provisions. What does this say to you about the legislative process that they have mandatory minimums and the money for a program like Safe Streets, which is community mediation? What does it say to you when they try to marry both of these things together? That that no one knows what they're doing, <laughs> mostly, because <laughs> you know, kind of, if you just have a historical perspective on criminal justice, you know, when you understand mandatory minimums and the other mm-hmm. tough on crime policies, main issue is that it has nothing really to do with uh, how effective these policies actually are. It has more to do with what actually impedes, what actually stops violent crime. What do we need to do to stop mm-hmm. violent crime? And what the issue is that the police in Baltimore know who are the purveyors of crime uh, and violent crime in particular. 
The issue is, is that they haven't caught the actual folks who are doing the, the killing. And right. the issue is, it comes back to the corruption of the Baltimore City Police Department right. with stuff like the Gun Trace Task Force mm-hmm. and the and the ineptitude of the state's attorney's office. Like all these other places are completely inept at keeping killers from off of the streets or finding people or convicting mm-hmm. people of murder. And so mandatory minimums for gun possession is really a stopgap because that's just going to sweep up other poor black people in the criminal right. justice system. And it's not going to stop the people who are actually killing other folks. It's going to just sweep up more black people who, you know, they may have an illegal handgun, maybe have not shot anybody but need it for protection. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of folks. And so it's not going to, it's not really getting at these folks. Those, they don't really care about mandatory minimum provisions. They're not paying attention to this legislative uh, process. Right. A- Adam, to your credit, uh, LBS and, and groups like Out for Justice, other groups, um, y'all were able to get Senate Bill 122 killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as you have Bobby Zirkin and Mike Miller and Mike Bush in Annapolis, mm-hmm. are we re- are we going to be able to see the types of uh, law enforcement reform that we really hope for anytime? I mean, I mean, how how difficult is it when you have that type of entrenched mm-hmm. power? You may call it racist power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you would. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, how, how, I mean, how do we? How, do, how can can we begin to really break that up? Yeah, I mean, to your point, it's really a handful of legislators in the state legislature that are really the holders of power. When you're talking about legislators who stop. Uh, progress where uh, criminal justice reform, particularly uh, Mike Miller, uh, President, uh, Senate President Mike Miller and Speaker of the House Michael Bush and people like Bobby Zirkin. And so when you um, have those folks who are really a small handful of people that are giving money to, you know, people who are running for a delegate and senator, they're, they're controlling who gets into elected office, all those. It's really that small handed people. So to me, the issue is, like you said, how do we get them out of office in the long term? Someone is running against Bobby Zirkin in his district th- this year mm. and and there's also people have I don't think Mike Miller has actually run against anybody in a long time, but they're actually at the they, they, Mike Miller and Mike Bush are at the end of their careers. So they'll probably retire soon. But we need to plan on who's going to take those seats of power and guide politics, because when Martin O'Malley was in power in the governor's seat, you know, he, it was like he was a new iteration of Don, William Donald Schaefer. It's just that long legacy of white people, white uh, legislators and white um the white political establishment using black gatekeepers as the way to, you know, implement racist policies in black communities. So we got we do have to stop that. Absolutely. Now, for several years, the city has been trying to get just a single civilian placed on the police department's internal trial boards. Why has that effort continued to fail? Well, because that's the that's that's the main sticking point with the Fraternal Order of Police, because they don't really want civilian participation in any substantive level of policing. And so our experience has been with them that they'll give they'll give small concessions. They'll say have community involvement mm-hmm. in this element, but we won't we won't allow you to be in part of a part of our disciplinary processes. And it's kind of the fundamental problem with the consent decree and all these other things. Like if you if you really look at all these criminal justice reforms, all of it focuses on small stopgap stopgap policies that that the mm-hmm. police department should implement. But in terms of the writ large legislative reforms that are necessary, they don't focus on that. And right. so the consent decree is going to be ineffective long term without those legislative changes. Now, we know that the Baltimore Police Department has proved itself to have corruption and it. We mm-hmm. saw that with the Gun Trace Task Force trial where nine officers have pled guilty to racketeering and theft and overtime fraud. Placing a civilian on the internal trial board, would that actually have any impact on this disciplinary process? 
Well, it's, it could. That's the issue that we haven't even tried. But the, mm-hmm. the other part is there are other just in every level of the administration of the police department. There should be some level of civilian oversight. So that's just one example. That's just like even on that one issue. That's where they've been fighting the hardest. They haven't fought this hard on, my, on many other reforms. And except when you talk about civilians involved in any level of their administrative or disciplinary hearing processes, mm-hmm. internal or external, they don't really want that. The same thing with the, uh, the trial boards, the uh, not the trial board, the uh, civilian review board right, with right. the Office of Civil Rights and Wage Enforcement with delegate uh, with uh, Director Joe Carter. They don't really want that board to have any power when you're talking about holding police accountable because they know once they open those books up and you see their administrative files and right. you really know the rampant nature of of uh, you know police misconduct in mm-hmm. the city that's when people are going to start asking questions but they don't really want that so I think it's been hard to, it's been so difficult to get that one small reform in place because at a, at a larger level they just don't want civilian participation in policing period right Now, again, the state's highest court has issued new bail regulations that were supposed to partially roll back cash bail but the bail industry almost completely derailed it can you tell us about that? So uh I know that for, well, last year, one of the main issues with bail was that the bail, so there's a lot of conversations about the bail industry and and how it exists and why it exists. Mm -hmm. So it as an industry, our argument is that it just should not exist. And so one of the fundamental problem is, is that even though with bail in the state of Maryland, like even though people are out and unsecure, even though people... Uh, are in jail because they cannot pay bail and they're being held for uh, you know unreasonable purposes right. and people are clear that it's racist because it's usually poor black and brown communities that are subject to it you know the bail industry is still allowed to proliferate so part of the issue is figuring out how to keep those reforms going in light of what happened last year mm-hmm. we were to stop the bail industry from repealing that uh, higher uh, that Maryland Court of Appeals decision that talked about, you know, people shouldn't be in prison because they can't pay bail. Right. So part of it just continuing that reform effort. We tra- we stopped the bail industry from doing that again this year, but they didn't really bring folks out once they got beat bad last year. Okay, I have just one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Some people call Maryland a blue state. Is that accurate, given how tough it is to pass progressive reforms? I mean, I mean, most black people who do advocacy in Annapolis would say it's like a plantation, oh, you know. So you, you wow. go to, you go, wow. and, you know, in the, in the, you know, the slave master is Mike Miller. You know, he, you're on the plantation Ooh. trying to figure out, you know, who, what white person do you need to have close proximity and relationships with in order to change, you know, uh, certain laws. And so it is our perspective that, you know, black people need to come into those places with a sense of power and understand they can't move anything without us. That's what I was saying Mm -hmm. before about the Black Caucus, is that even though Maryland is a blue state, there's a lot of white folks who are Democrats who are moderate or conservative, Mm -hmm. like Bobby Zirkin, who are allowed to, you know, pass bills and support bills that hurt black people's lives. And so it isn't really a blue state. It's, It's not really about blue or red. It's about black and everybody else, as far as I'm concerned. One, wow. one, one quick question. Um, you, you, I mean, you, you, you called out Bobby Zirk and Mike Miller and Mike Bush, mm-hmm. um, and and part of the 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 method of LBS is to pe- put people in the spotlight mm-hmm. who are impeding progress. Who else would you want to identify um, that may have been disruptors or 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 or, or uh, again um, it, it, impeding progress as far as law enforcement reform is concerned? Well, there's the Fraternal Order of Police, the specifically the local uh, lodge here in Baltimore City with Gene Ryan, um, the state FOP, State Fraternal Order of Police, and um, people like Bobby Zirkin who were financially supported by the bail industry and other law enforcement agencies. All of those traditional law enforcement organizations and um, political advocacy groups are the ones that are the problem. Mike Miller in particular, though, 
Uh, he's had control of that Senate for such a long time, and so that's why they haven't been able to move anything. So people like him, uh, Michael Bush, has been less of a problem, but uh, he also, you know, it's part of the long-term Democratic political establishment. And I think what Maryland's experiencing right now is a power vacuum. Mm-hmm. Since O'Malley left office, or you know, when he finished his uh, governor, his term as governor, uh, there hasn't really been a, pl- a a a filler for him. And so I think part of the problem is we had a bunch of inept Democrats who invested in his future in terms of being president of the United. States mm. and saw themselves connected to something larger when he lost. Now we have no virtually no political leadership, particularly from black folks. And so virtually everybody is on is in some way on some nonsense because no one really has, you know, uh, uh, I guess a leader to look to to see what to do that would be more positive as opposed to a Martin O'Malley. Mm. I want to thank my guest, Adam Jackson, CEO of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. What did I do? Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Taya Graham, Stephen Janis, and Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Productions. The show is edited by Stephen Janis. Thank you to our engineer, Sienna Greaves. Please make sure to join us for our next podcast and contact us on Facebook and Twitter if you want to recommend a topic for us to discuss. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Sean Yost. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you so much for joining us on Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs>